from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. There's new legislation in Congress to protect U.S. telecom networks from foreign threats. The Secure Equipment Act of 2021 bans the FCC from issuing equipment licenses to companies that pose a national security risk. All prohibited firms that are currently on the list are Chinese companies. The Senate unanimously passed the act and it's now moving to the president's desk for signing. The Pentagon says it will add a climate policy czar to its employee roster. That position comes as part of the DOD's efforts to increase its response to climate change risks and impacts. Colin Call, the Defense Undersecretary for Policy, says combating climate change needs to be a priority for his office. Call says the department will likely announce the official who will deal with those issues within the next few weeks. Funds in the thrift savings plan are moving back up after a low month in September. Almost every TSP portfolio showed growth throughout the month of October. The C fund has the strongest growth of the last month, increasing 7% during October. That fund has increased more than 24% so far this year. The only fund to finish in the red last month was the fixed income or F fund. The General Services Administration wants to boost small business opportunities in government by showcasing ways for those companies to engage in the federal market. GSA's administrator, Robin Carnahan, says GSA is, quote, setting the bar by incorporating the White House's diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility goals into all of the agency's work. Jim Williams is partner at Shambach and Williams Consulting. He's run acquisition operations at numerous government agencies and was the first federal acquisition commissioner at the GSA. Jim, welcome. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Mimi. Good to be here with you. It's a, it's a laudable goal to try to increase small business opportunities in the federal government, but how does GSA actually do that? Well, I think what GSA is talking about here is two ways, really. One is what Exodi, their small business associate administrator, is talking about is how do we help government provide training and, excuse me, how do we help small businesses come into the government? And that's a really difficult task for small business. And training them, providing them with the, the paths to get there is very important, but providing them the acquisition vehicles is the second half, which is really where things like Polaris are headed, which is a small business IT services, uh, huge uh, GWAC. The Biden administration's goal is to increase federal contracting for small businesses by 50% over five years. Is that doable? It's doable, but it's a very tough goal. And I, and I think things like Polaris having that big government-wide acquisition vehicle that gives the other agencies, the customer agencies, a way to get to those small businesses is a good goal. I do have some other issues with Polaris, though. Let Please share it. <laughs> well, I think it's great. I mean, I'm a huge fan of small business and, and allocating or, or making sure that a lot of the procurement dollars go to small business because small businesses do great work. What I worry about with things like Polaris is they've really uh, eliminated looking at CPARs as a discriminator, meaning if you get an average rating, you're okay. And I think when they're talking about trying to construct a vehicle of small businesses who do good work, and, and great work, the agencies want to see good companies. And if you're not measuring whether they're better than average, then I'm not sure you're going to get what the agencies need. Uh, 
Well, assuming that they do get the better than average, what benefit is it to try to increase small business participation to the federal government and ultimately to the taxpayer? Well, I think small businesses are known as sources of innovation. They have been throughout the history. Uh, they are the growth in the economy a lot of times is, is small business. And I've worked for a small business doing government work. I've worked with clients who are small business. It is a tough road, Mimi, because when you think about all the things you have to have as a small business, potentially certifications that are very expensive. If you're an IT company, it's FedRAMP or what's called CMMC or getting on GSA schedule or getting 8A status. Those are our hard things to get, and sometimes they have to hire people to help them get those things. I want to shift a little bit to greenhouse gas emissions because the GSA recently put out an RFI, a request for information, um, for technologies that could reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's a big priority for the Biden administration. But they've also had this green proving ground program for 10 years. What's the difference? Well, I don't think there's any difference. The green proving ground is where they take submissions from the RFI and say, if you have a good idea, let's bring it into our, our testing lab, our green proving ground. And that's something GSA has had for a while. I think the difference is now with this RFI, they're doing it with Department of Energy. And they're really trying to be the leader for the Biden administration goals on climate change and, and energy reduction. If we're going to get to those kinds of goals, whether it's you know reducing uh, the, the Earth's temperature uh, in, by 2050, or GSA even has more aggressive goals by 2030, you've got to take the best ideas from the private sector. And the green proving ground has been around for a while. I think they're really trying to get things more in the energy space, which I think helps meet those climate goals. Are there other agencies or what could other agencies learn from GSA on both fronts, increasing small business participation and reducing their carbon footprint? Well, I think GSA works together with the other agencies they have for years with EPA uh, on some of their, their programs, with the Department of Agriculture on, on some of their uh, biodiverse products. So I think other agencies are doing things, but this really is a whole of government approach. It's not just GSA, Department of Defense, uh, is just about to name a climate czar. So I, I think GSA and DOD can further partner on things that they can do as leaders in the government that help the other agencies. All right, well, Jim, thanks so much. Nice talking to you as usual. You too, Mimi, thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new nominee for controller of the Office of Management and Budget and the new authorities she could get. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. President Biden has nominated a permanent leader for the Office of Federal Financial Management at OMB. That nominee is Laurel Blatchford, former chief of staff at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. If the Senate confirms her, Blatchford will be the first permanent OMB controller in almost five years. Danny Werfel is former controller at the Office of Management and Budget and former acting commissioner of the IRS. He's currently managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group. Danny, welcome. Nice to see you. Thank you, Mimi. Before we start with the actual interview, the community lost somebody very special recently, and you wanted to reflect on that. Yeah, I mean, the, when the CFO Act created the Office of Federal Financial Management, which Laura Blatchford will lead if she's confirmed, 
The person who took the helm the first day is Hal Steinberg, and we lost Hal last week. He passed away after a short battle with cancer. He was just a giant in federal financial management and government accounting, and um, just so passionate about uh, the world of financial management, and did so much to advance it over the course of his career, and just wanted to reflect on all of his contributions. He was a mentor to me, and a mentor to many of the people that held the position of controller, so we will miss you, Hal. Thank you, thank you for doing that. This position that we're talking about has been vacant for five years. Yeah. That's an awfully long time. Why, why has it been vacant for so long? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a, maybe a matter of circumstance. In the last administration, there were a couple of different people that were uh, either rumored or put forward or the community thought these, this is going to be the next controller. And for whatever reason, and I don't have the, the, the background, you know, these things, sometimes they don't go through. And you hope that there's a persistence to get another nominee in place. It didn't happen. But I know the community is excited to have a permanent controller. I, can't, I know the people at OMB and specifically the office that this person runs, the Office of Federal Financial Management, uh, a talented group of people that are just uh, dedicated to the, the uh, financial management mission. I know they're excited to have a, a permanent controller in place. So what will be the biggest priorities? I mean, besides wiping off the, the dust off the desk, what, what is she going to need to be doing? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, there's a lot of spending going on right now. Uh, the American Rescue Plan, stimulus spending, if President Biden's infrastructure bill goes through, uh, when, whenever you have an increase in the amount of money going out the door, it creates tense, uh, you know, tension and stress on the system. Things like we got to track all of that. We have to make it transparent on USA spending, where the money's going. We have to capture that information and make sure that there aren't improper payments and fraud and error. And a lot of that cross-government coordination rests in the hand of the controller. So she'll be coming on in a place where we're in an increased spending world and an increased risk world. And there'll be organizations like GAO and the IGs looking at all of this. This, and I could imagine a future hearing where Ms. Blatchford's going to be testifying and having to explain, here's why the improper payments, or here's why we didn't get the information on USAspending.gov quickly enough, or maybe, and hopefully she'll be celebrating the successes. The next OMB controller will also control the real estate of the federal government, which is going to be very interesting given the, you know, return to work, all the people that are still teleworking. Talk about that authority and what's that going to mean? I mean, it's, a, it's one of the more fascinating challenges that the controller will have because, you know, Right now, we're, we're kind of at a crossroads in terms of the use of, of administrative facilities, not just in government, but all across industries and all across the, the world. And what do you do with, um, with the fact that there may be, you know, uh, a bigger push for telework, less requirements uh, for federal space that is needed? Um, all, there, there are so many key questions that need to be answered that are connected both to our, our human capital plan around on telework and, and, and recruiting and retention, because we could lose p talented people who go to different industries that have more flexible telework, yet we don't want to lose what makes the government special about our culture and our connectivity. Those questions will be answered, and once and as they're answered, it also has a big impact, in our, impact on our real estate needs. And the controller will have that seat at the table and have to help drive with GSA the future direction that the government takes in terms of our real property. 
Well, you mentioned working with GSA, but when it comes to pandemic spending in particular, what are the other agencies that the OMB controller will have to work with and collaborate with? Well, the first thing that, that I think the, the first and foremost thing that the OMB controller needs to do is, is lead the Office of Federal Financial Management. That's their first priority. But very close second is working with each CFO, the chief financial officer of each agency, essentially as a dotted line relationship to the controller. And one way to describe the controller's functions is it leads the CFO community on enterprise efforts. It establishes the train schedules that all the CFOs have to abide by, but then also works with the CFO community to figure out what's the next set of train schedules that we want to develop. Well, the train schedules are very difficult right now with just the current train schedules with, as I mentioned, with all the spending that's going on, first priority is to, is to do no harm and make sure that that money is going out in a transparent and efficient way. But also, where are we evolving to? Like, what technologies are we going to leverage? How can we do even better in terms of serving the citizenry with good transparency of our finances and getting them involved? Um, so there's a lot on the plate. So what do you recommend to her, assuming she gets confirmed by the Senate? Well, the first thing I like to recommend to new leaders is go on a listening tour. Like, listen to the civil servants at OMB and around government and the recent political appointees. What are they seeing on the ground? What's keeping them up at night? What's their ambition and their aspiration? Gather a lot of information. Be the type of leader that's collaborating. I mean, she should go in saying, I have some ideas, but I really want to hear from the community around what's our state of the union in financial management and where we should go from there. And then she can take that information and together with a group of CFOs and with the civil servants at OMB and the agencies, formulate a plan going forward. Do you miss being in the government? Of course I miss being in the government. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's nothing like it. I'll, I will say this about the government. The highs are very high, the lows are very low, but there's nothing like, and this is the point about real property, there was no feeling like walking into a government building, you know, seeing the picture of the president, the vice president, the leader of the agency on the wall, it doesn't matter whether it was Republican or Democrat, and just feeling like you're a part of a solution and part of, of fighting for, for better government, better outcomes for Americans in the world, amazing feeling. Danny, thank you so much as always for being on the program. Thank you, Mimi. Up next, the looming deadline for federal workers to get vaccinated. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the vaccine mandate is affecting the entire federal workforce. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The deadline for all federal workers to get the COVID-19 vaccine is coming up on November 22nd. The Office of Personnel Management reports that federal workers have used only 58% of special emergency paid leave funding. Don Kettle is Professor Emeritus and former Dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Don, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you here. So federal employees used less than 60% of the available funding for emergency paid leave for the COVID-19. Was there just an overestimation, do you think, of how much leave workers would need as a result of the pandemic? Well, it's a combination of things, I think, and, and part a bit of an overestimation. There was an effort to try to make sure that no matter what, there was going to be plenty of money to take care of the fed, federal workers who decided to take advantage of it. But it also, I think, reflects a concern on the part of, of at least some feds about taking up on this. The, the distribution across different federal agencies has been very different. and. 
as has been the case in lots of state and local governments, it's blue collar workers who have in many ways been the, the point of the spear of trying to sort these issues out. Do you think that the creation of the fund is going to be a precedent for the future? It's a precedent for sure because uh, one of these things, once it's done, when new problems come up, you can reach back and say, has anybody ever done this before? And if the answer is yes, it makes it that much easier to do the next time. But also, given the fact that only 58% of the funds were spent, it will certainly raise questions about, in the future, how much money may be needed to be put on the table if we ever need to go down this road again. And unfortunately, the, the odds are that at some point, in some way, with something coming up, we're going to have to try to confront this question sometime in the future. I want to ask you about the vaccine deadline, because practically it's November 8th, right? So employees right. need to have a two-week waiting period after their second dose to meet the November 22nd deadline. What do you think enforcement's going to look like, especially this is right before Thanksgiving? Well, that's the thing that the deadline as it was set up and in some ways makes sense in terms of trying to get federal employees vaccinated but the idea of handing out either uh, suspensions leave without pay and other kinds of disciplinary actions right before thanksgiving is something that somehow feels like it's not likely to be able to happen and in addition to that in the background is a is a running battle about whether or not contractors themselves need to be vaccinated and there is lots of pressures to try to push that deadline back and if contractors deadlines are going to be pushed back and if for example some of the state lawsuits on that are successful because there are 11 governors now suing to try to stop the effort to to try to force contractors to be vaccinated then it creates that much more pressure to try to relax at least in some ways the the deadline for federal employees so i but suspect we're going to see lots of haggling as we go down these next couple of weeks but Don, I do want to ask you a little bit more about the contractor deadline, but going back to the federal deadline, right. if if there's really no enforcement, what's the use of a vaccine mandate? What's the use of a deadline? Well, I think in, in part it's a way of trying to encourage people to be able to get the vaccine. The, creating a deadline creates at least some, some psychic pressure to try to be able to get that to happen. Uh, it's clear that in the private sector, creating deadlines has really had a significant impact in getting people vaccinated. It's also a way of trying to say, you know, that maybe we're going to re ease up on some of these restrictions and, and some of the penalties that may be down the line, but sooner or later it may happen. Maybe I'll just go out and get the vaccine anyway. In addition to that, many of the, the individuals who are trying to consider whether or not to get the vaccination have kids as well, and the, those, those vaccines have been approved as well. That, also reduces some of the barriers. So I suspect that it's more psychic pressure at this point, but trying to get to the point in the federal government of saying to people, especially right before Thanksgiving, you're gonna be penalized is something that somehow seems not likely to happen. So going back to what you were saying about the contractor deadline and the pressure to move that back, what does that do for the dynamic if those things don't really line up between the contractor's vaccine mandate and the federal vaccine mandate? Yeah, contractors are such an important part of, in, in many ways, the public service workforce. And if it turns out that, first of all, the, the contractor deadline turns out to get a little bit on the, the mushy side, if it turns out that some of the state actions to try to prevent the imposition of that kind of mandate are successful or at least create more political problems, and then if it turns out that federal employees are responsible for trying to enforce the deadlines that are imposed on contractors it, it makes for a, an extremely messy situation 
And it's very hard if it turns out that these things are not in sync, especially if we say federal employees, you have to meet the deadline. Contractors, we're going to slip things back. And then, of course, with the contractors, we start getting into the Christmas holidays and there's going to be pressure to say, well, let's at least give people until after the first of the year. And that just creates even more tension about different standards that may be imposed by diff on different groups at different times by different people. You know, Don, you've said there's no going back to March of 2020. It's not out of the question for, you know, another strain of COVID-19 yeah. to pick up or for there to be another pandemic. What would it look like for federal workers if that were to happen? Well, and one of the things we have to do that I think we've learned is that we, we simply can't assume that now, okay, this is all done. We're going to go back to the way everything was back before the pandemic. That's, that's just something that can't happen, won't happen, shouldn't happen. Uh, we've learned a lot about the way in which the workforce could operate. And that's something we have, I think, learned that we can have new ways of trying to enhance productivity by trying to think about work from home options and other ways of trying to use that to recruit new federal employees. In addition to that, though, uh, we have to at least consider the possibility that another strain, another kind of variant may pop up and we may have to go through all this all over again. The best defense against that is vaccinating as many people as possible. But we have to begin now by planning the possibility of either another variant or some kind of other issue in the future that that creates the need to try to have more flexibility in the workforce. And the worst mistake we could make is to fail to learn the lessons that we've learned so painfully over the last 18 months. All right. Well, Don, thanks as always. And uh, appreciate you being on the program. It's so great to be with you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, we're on Twitter at GovMattersTV, and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.